Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Sandra Fahi, Associate Professor in Anthropology at Sophia University in Tokyo, about her book, Marching Through Suffering, Loss and Survival in North Korea, which was published in 2015 by Columbia University Press, who are also bringing out a new paperback edition early in 2019. A lot has been in flux on the Korean peninsula over the past year, even if attempting to forecast where things will go from here remains as unwise as ever. But one issue which seems unlikely to go away is the question of human rights and concern over the well-being of North Korea's population, a subject which arguably came most forcefully to the world's attention during the catastrophic famine which affected the country from the mid to late 1990s. This tragedy forms the background to Sandra Fahi's marching through suffering, which draws on many interviews with famine survivors who later escaped the country to South Korea and Japan. Guided throughout by Fahi's careful observation, analysis and framing, we enter the subjective life worlds of a wide range of North Koreans, parents and children, bureaucrats and farmers, soldiers, miners and students, getting a full sense, not so much of the lacks or absences often stressed in discussion of famine, but of how these people confronted and coped with the crisis, what took place in the lacuna, as Fahi herself puts it. Proceeding through accounts of people's realisation of the reality of what was happening and of the consequences of the disaster for community, political and economic life, Fahi treats this devastating and difficult subject with immense care and nuance, making close attention to the language used by her interlocutors a central pillar of the book. With directness and clarity, marching through suffering gives voice to speakers whose experiences must surely remain in all of our minds as we try better to understand a North Korean society which recent developments have once again brought to global attention. But in any case, on the subject of attention, uh, I'll thank you listeners for listening and say, Sandra Fahi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ed. It's my pleasure to be here. No, well, it's uh, great to have you on. Um, it's a fantastic book, and, and it's great news that it'll be uh, being uh, yeah, renewed uh, in paperback format uh, early next year. Um, but perhaps I could begin by asking you something about your academic background, um, where, you were, uh, where you were trained, and, and how you became interested in the subject of this book. Um, okay, well, to start, I um, I did my bachelor's degree and my master of arts in Canada at York University. Um, and at that time, my first degree was in ling- English literature. Um, and I had always been interested, I mean, since my high school days in um, survivor literature, um, fiction and nonfiction written by people who'd survived different types of collective social suffering. So it seemed quite natural to me that my first degree would be in literature. And um, then for my master's degree, I studied interdisciplinary studies, which was um, history, anthropology, and um, also literature again. The 
primary, I guess, intellectual question that started in my mind prior to my master's degree was, um, do different types of collective social suffering produce different types of kind of survivor narrative? Because I had read so many survivor narratives from, for instance, the Holocaust or different sorts of genocide. Um, I was just really curious about other types of collective social suffering. And one that was the forefront of my mind was famine. And uh, so for my master's degree, I studied um, the famine, the Irish famine of 1847 and um, was looking at, you know, the historical record of that and trying to find survivor narratives. So for me, like the questions were immediately about language, of course, colonization, having a foreign um, power in the land, and how food shortage affected people, how it affected their relationships, things like this. So that was in my early 20s. And I really wanted for my PhD work to find, go to a place where there were famine survivors and collect their oral history. Because what I saw when I looked at the global historical record is that there were no there were no collections there were no survivor narratives i mean it was all if it was written it was written by journalists it was written by outsiders um you know so i was really curious like if such individuals were to write their stories if they were to speak about it uh, what would they say so that was a primary intellectual question that drove me um and then very pragmatically you know, I mean, I was in my early 20s. I thought, oh, well, where can I go in the world where there are, there could be people who have survived famine? Of course, I knew about the um, famine in Ethiopia, but that had happened in the mid 80s. And, uh, but of course, this was in the early 2000s that all of this was going on in my mind, late 1990s, early 2000s. And I, I knew about what was happening in North Korea. And I thought, oh, okay, I will go to South Korea and I will learn Korean and I will meet North Koreans because I knew, of course, that they were coming out to South Korea. And uh, many of my friends, well, I suppose I should say acquaintances, they were like, oh my gosh, I'll never be able to do that. Like, you should have been studying this language from the age of five or whatever in order to get any kind of competency. But I, uh, I'm i a very determined person when I want to do something. So so then I went off before my PhD to to go to South Korea. And I knew with a master's degree, I would be fortunate enough to get an English teaching job in South Korea. And I'm very grateful to South Korea that I was able to go there and have a reasonably good job that I was able to do language study at the same time as my job and uh, that I was able to then work with the North Korean defectors in South Korea. And that was prior to any of my PhD work. And then anyway, I, I could go on, but then I did my PhD work and I did the actual field research for the book. So, but that's, that was the primary question that drove it. You know, what would survivor narratives of famine, which is a form of political violence. I mean, some people might not use the word violence because of the way it manifests. Famine manifests quite differently from something like the Holocaust, obviously, or different types of genocide, but we can get into that mm. later. Mm. But that was the primary question that it was born in. So that's that's pretty pretty interesting. I, I guess many people come to North Korean studies uh, in as much as that is a, a kind of substantial uh, disciplinary 
corner uh, for North Korea, you know, I think because of particular interest in the specificities of North Korea. And I think um, you represent a very interesting uh, alternative perspective on the country coming to the place from an issue perspective with a with a question in mind that, as you say, has has wider applicability. I just wonder, is there something particular about uh, about the human condition, about uh, about humanity, uh, that 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 sustained your interest there in in survival literature? What, what what sort of things do you did you find revealed in general, not just in the North Korean case, but in your preceding studies about humans uh, from this? Uh, genre of, of of survival literature i think when i um when i started reading literature from survivors of collective social suffering i just i felt this i don't know i mean i don't wish to sound grandiose but i felt this sort of sense of duty or responsibility like if there were things going on during my lifetime that i wanted that i wanted to somehow play a part in trying to ameliorate that suffering in some small way like I just often felt like, my gosh, it, like a, a kind of sense of duty to my fellow humans. <laughs> um, I, I don't know, like a kind of, but I suppose also maybe just a curiosity or a sense of, oh, just a just a sense that if I, um, well, also I, I guess I felt that if I had been on the inside of such an experience, I would want to know that there was somebody outside of that experience working on my behalf without without trying to sound too grandiose that was just always my feeling and so i would having somebody who was born free and living her whole life with immense privilege felt that i wanted to have a duty to my fellow human in that way um yeah, I think that's uh, well. It's certainly a, uh, I, I, I think something that uh, should should be able to be said without fear of uh, of, of cynicism or, uh, or or accusations of, of being grandiose, as you say. Um, so that's that's uh, very interesting. And uh, when it comes to the book uh, and the transition from uh, the PhD, which, as you say, did supplementary work with uh, defectors and the survivors uh, for, how did the process of of PhD into book uh, occur? Well, I did the, the, I applied for my PhD, I guess it was 2003. I started my PhD 2004. Um, I applied to, to schools in back in Canada and in the United States. Um, but then I also applied to schools in the UK and I uh, was accepted at SOAS. And I was quite happy about that because I got to work with Johan Poitier. He's a professor who of anthropology who worked on the Rwandan genocide um, and different famines throughout Africa, and uh, Keith Howard, who is also an anthropologist, ethnomusicologist who works on Korea. And so kind of with the thematic combination, regional combination of both of those professors, I felt I was really well guided. I then had done so many years of work with NGOs in South Korea with defectors, so I had that kind of grounding. I... I think in many ways I was a bit naive. Like I hadn't thought of that moment. Like we as anthropologists, when we go into the field, you know, it's that awkward thing about how do you say to someone, okay, now I want to talk about this thing with you, which is possibly the most horrible experience you've ever had in your life. And, and I don't know you that well. <laughs> and so I hadn't thought about that moment. Um, 
I don't know. I, and I think that's just the way we are prior to field work. I mean, field work is kind of like a baptism by fire. I feel like field work kind of really changes you as a scholar. Like I felt, I'm, I'm sure perhaps for you, it was the same. Like I felt like I was moving from a child into an adult. Um, so yeah, just that feeling of the field work was, was quite scary, even though like I had been in the community and I had, and I had, um, you know, I wasn't an alien to that environment. Um, but the thing that surprised me, well, you know, I mean, I suppose it must've been the same for you. Like I had anticipated certain outcomes. I had anticipated hearing certain answers. And when I didn't hear them, I was quite shocked. And it was, you know, I mean, I, I think field work should be an education <laughs> to ourselves. Like it's like when you write, like when you write a book, you you learn as you write. It's not as if you know everything and you just are writing it down. I mean, that's what a PhD is too. Like you're you are learning from the data. The data is teaching you. So, for instance, some of the things that really came as a surprise to me, like I had naively thought, like if you experience oppression if you were if you're subjugated i had often thought like i had really thought that um all i mean it sounds ridiculous to say but that oppressed subjects bear a resemblance to each other and that that resemblance will manifest in how they resist or how they understand their oppression and how they resist it which i mean maybe if i had read more i would have known that that was ridiculous but that's just the way it was for me. I really thought, and, and I guess, look, to be honest, I suspect a lot of people still think, a lot of people think that way, that, um, that oppressed subjects experience their oppression similarly and they respond to it similarly. So for, for instance, how does that like manifest on the ground? Like I had thought that North Koreans would, uh, had experienced the famine and that they saw the government as culpable. So I was already moving from that point to ask the question of, well, how did you, you know, take out your frustration toward the government? But even prior to that, I should have been asking them, like, I realized, and they taught me. The question was really like, what was the experience like? How did you even, like, know, to whom did you direct your frustration? You know, and that's what I learned, that, like, really, the questions are you actually have to step your questions way back if, if that makes any sense. Mm. Now that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, I guess uh, perhaps we could move on to talk a little bit about some of the, some of the background in general um, before jumping into some of these responses, uh, which, which obviously make up the, the, the body of the book itself. Um, would you mind, uh, not that it's something particularly pleasant to talk about, but the, the famine as a situation uh, when it occurred and what it involved. Um, would you be able to say a little bit about that just to kind of refresh listeners' uh, listeners' memories of, of, of what occurred in North Korea uh, in the mid to late 90s? Sure. Yeah, that's actually the basic place that we should start. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you look at the uh, kind of policy literature, the academic literature, It'll a lot of the time state that the famine started around the mid 1990s, but actually, um, you know, famine will both the famine in North Korea, the, you know, the issue with access to food happened um, as early as the late 1980s in some parts of the country. 
So that's the first thing to know, like that the famine was not equally distributed throughout the country when it began. So in some places like Pyongyang, they would say the famine started around the mid-1990s. The worst years of the famine, meaning if we calculate like the sheer number of uh, mortalities, was in uh, 1997, 1998, but definitely at least uh, eight, nine years before that, uh, things were quite horrendous. Why did the famine happen in North Korea in the first place? I mean, it's really interesting to think about because um, at that time, I mean, yes, then in the late 1990s, there was IMF crisis, etc. But, you know, uh, North Korea is sitting amidst quite strong economies. Why is it the North Koreans are dying uh, for their inability to get access to food? Well, the primary reason that the famine happened in North Korea, I mean, yes, there were environmental problems. There were There was a lot of flooding. There were droughts. But in no part of the world... And this is the important thing for readers to come away with. I mean, scholars uh, who work on famine in other parts of the world will know this. There's no reason for a famine to happen in any part of the world, um, particularly in the last half of the, the 20th century. I mean, uh, you know, so the reason why that's the case is that, you know, we have um, early warning signals for famine. I mean, we know if there's going to be environmental factors that are going to cause food shortage and thus we can bring in food from elsewhere. Um, prices can be altered. Um, so there's no reason for food, uh, a famine to be happening in some place like Yemen, as it is as we speak, or in Venezuela. Um, these things are in fact uh, the result of politics. And so and many people would just say simply, it's about power. It's about power politics. It's about conflict. So in the case of North Korea, the North Korean government could have made decisions um, that would have altered its economy, that would have altered its politics to give its people access to food. They chose otherwise. They chose to prioritize um, the military. They chose to continue with uh, the socialist economy, um, the socialist uh, agriculture approach, which was uh, very intensive farming, scientific methods. Um, they didn't open up, uh, at least not immediately, the markets, uh, free markets to the people. They didn't allow people to migrate throughout the country to find food in other areas. They didn't allow people to sell. Um, they didn't allow people to leave the country to find food elsewhere. So all of these factors coalesced to create a situation where people couldn't alter their access to food. That's what Amatira Sen talks about in his books, Development and Freedom, etc. People, when people cannot alter their access to food, and by which I mean they can't sell their furniture to, in the market to get money to buy food, they can't uh, migrate, they can't uh, advocate for themselves, they can't make demands of their government. When that's the case, um, then you have a famine, which is politically motivated. So that's what happened in North Korea. And, and uh, just say, I mean, the, the percentage of deaths, we don't even to this day know, but they argue it's between 220,000. Uh, some people say upwards of 2 million people died. We still don't know the numbers. Even North Korea itself doesn't know the numbers. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, and you lay all this out in a, in pretty clear terms in an appendix uh, to the book, which is which is very helpful. Um, but then as, as we move into the, the introduction and you kind of set the scene here, um, there are a few key 
additional aspects to how the famine was experienced that you allude to, which remain key themes throughout the whole book. For one thing, whether it's referred to as a famine uh, and and what respondents, uh, what your interlocutors' uh, responses were to you using words for famine when, when discussing these issues. So perhaps could you say something about how the famine is spoken of and recalled by some of the people you spoke to and actually, as you already mentioned, how you went about approaching this extremely difficult subject with people who had, as you say, survived pretty uh, tragic and, and devastating events. When I met North Koreans, um, you know, I was working in the NGO community, the North Korean defector community, but I didn't really want to interview people who were politically active. So I asked those who who I knew uh, if I could interview their family and friends, and they connected me. But always I told everybody, like, look, I wanna I wanna talk to you about the the food problem. I want to talk to you about the the famine. And of course, I use that term, kia kigun. But I also use the term konenihengun, which is the march of suffering, which is the term North Korea used. The North Korean state used that term. They used a few other terms too, but they primarily used that term. And the first thing I'll say about that is that, you know, my anticipation that people would feel um, reluctant or even embarrassed to talk about you know, that extremely difficult time of their lives, what I found was that people were eager to talk to me about that time, that they really wanted to talk about that. And this came as a quite a, a pleasant surprise to me, but a, a surprise nonetheless. Um, the other thing that's really interesting is that, like I said, uh, they wanted, I mean, North Koreans immediately just came back to me and said, oh, you mean the Koneni Hengun, you mean the March of Suffering, you don't, I mean, the famine, like they often didn't even know the Korean word, which is uh, originally Chinese for famine or starvation. They didn't know these terms. Um, but I just want to say on that point, and then going, this goes to the broader literature on famine, which is that that's not uncommon. I mean, the, the Great Leap Forward famine in China was called the three-year natural calamity. Um you know, uh, I, I suspect if we were to interview some people who are in uh, Yemen right now, there'd be a particular term uh, to refer to it, and the same in Venezuela for what's happening. Um, so there are these very localized terms which are meant for erasure that are that are meant to soften the type of experience that people are having. And there's something else to say about that, which is that you know, famine is something which is different from other types of political violence. It's a very indirect form of violence. It builds itself into society quite slowly. It's not an event. It's not an event like an earthquake or a tsunami or, um, you know, like it will slowly build itself into a society. So you can have a famine taking place in areas like Chongjin, Northeast and North Korea for many years before it reaches a place like Pyongyang. People in Pyongyang had no idea what was going on in places like Chongjin. Mm, mm. And well, actually that provides a pretty, um, a, a, a pretty convenient link into the, into the first chapter of the book uh, after the introduction that the busy years um, is the title. And really a lot of what this chapter concerns is the, is the, um, idea of or the, the process of realization and how people came to 
come to terms with the idea that this thing was, as you as you put it there, sort of creeping into their lives. Um, what kind of experiences uh, allowed people to come to that realization, uh, and and how 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 did they initially react, or what what was their sort of interpretation of 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 the food shortages that that crept in? Well, the the thing that's interesting that I that I decided to start with for that first chapter was, I think that's where um, one of the young North Korean defectors is telling me that she associated famine with something happening in Africa, no country being specified. Um, you know, it was really, and this is something we can appreciate as anthropologists, a very localized interpretation of events. People thought, oh, well, what's happening for us is, um, you know, it's just a, a kind of glitch. There was this delayed kind of um, a sense that uh, that there will be reprieve, um, the delusion of reprieve, that at some point, we will be um, saved from the situation that we're in. At some point, things are going to improve. So that was the, you know, because in North Korea, they distribute through food through something called the public distribution system. And uh, because of the famine, of course, which was because the government was making decisions which were not in the people's interest, the public distribution was malfunctioning. So when people would go to the distribution centers, there wasn't anything to collect. They would be told, we'll come back next week or come back, come back next month. And the same answer would be received that next month or whatever. How I asked then, how did you know that the famine was happening? And of course, you know, as anthropologists, we like to kind of ask naive questions, questions we maybe already have an idea what the answer might be. So I said things like, oh, well, but did the government advertise? <laughs> did they, you know, publicized that there was a food shortage and, you know, this type of thing. Of course, they said, no, not at all. I mean, how we came to know that the famine was happening is that suddenly, like, teachers weren't showing up at school anymore because they were too busy foraging in the mountains. Teachers were falling asleep at their desks. Suddenly, I saw this in this person who ordinarily should have been in their job, but they were actually selling in the black market. Um, We heard certain rumors. I mean, this is how information circulated. You put bits and pieces together. Um, and then, of course, you know, it escalated. It got worse. I mean, why did they call it the busy years? Because people were kind of running all over the place trying to um, piece their lives together in such a way that they could get enough money to to buy food on the black market to live. I mean, it was like the time of hustling, you know, the time of um, moonlighting, you know, doing two jobs at once, the one for the state and the one which really earns your income. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that how it kind of crept into or how it arrived in contexts, as you mentioned, through, for example, teachers not showing up uh, and, and really s- sort of shifts occurring uh, in both people's day-to-day activities, uh, as you say, hustling and, and trying to make ends meet in new and unfamiliar ways, but also uh, in the way that society was sort of existing in relation to itself, how different members of society, whether they were teachers or workers in certain fields, were affected differentially by the famine and therefore that led to a sort of reconfiguration of, of uh, how people were re- relating to each other. Um, it's important as, as well that you and you outlay very uh, beautifully how the 
famine, how famine dynamics map onto existing societies, existing social dynamics. Um, so perhaps moving into the second chapter, which you entitled Cohesion and Disintegration, um, could you say something more about the effects of the famine there on uh, societal dynamics as it became more and more acute uh, and whether people were more inclined to stick together, whether they were driven apart by uh, the effects of the famine? Yes, that... Um... Look, I mean, people talk all the time how in East Asia there's this sense of, like, a familiality, like the, you know, uh, like, um, the importance of family and the bond. And you know how in Korean they'll use the expression our, well, our wife, meaning my wife, but but it's our, the sense of the collective, the we. And that's really strong in North Korea too. I mean, just as an anecdote, I'll say like, you know, South Korea is a, is a very warm um, communal, for me, my experience at least of South Korea is that like people are very, they will inject themselves into your business whether you want it or not. And um this is the same in North Korea, at least if the people that I know from North Korea are any accurate, uh, you know, have any accurate assessment of things, you know, that there is this kind of um, sense of the collective that we're in this together. So that's quite interesting when you have a situation which is very divisive and shortage of resources in a fixed market is something that's going to create divisiveness. It's going to create trouble. And it did that in North Korea. I mean, certain people were more closely bonded together, but in other ways, it created a lot of disintegration. There are even nowadays, of course, still reports of the military taking advantage, soldiers taking advantage and stealing from people, the elite in North Korea um, taking advantage. um, And families breaking apart. I mean, that's what happened. I mean, um, people weren't even able to tell each other that they were defecting. Family members um, couldn't tell each other that they were leaving. Why is that? Not because you don't necessarily want the person to know, but because you don't want to implicate the person in case they're interrogated or in case you don't want them to catch any slack for you, for the choices that you're making. But in terms of the cohesion, there were cases reported to me of whole families committing suicide together. Um, You know, to me, that's a sign of cohesion. Um, And at the same time, it's a sign of disintegration. I mean, what's what's interesting is that in terms of this um, cohesion and disintegration, right? So you have differences in how people live in Pyongyang and how people live in Chongjin, but it's not always so apparent. But then I asked, I mean, I asked North Koreans, how did you, what did you think and how did you respond when you saw there were some people who did quite well in your area and they were doing better than you? And and for example, these could be, although they weren't always, they these could these individuals who did better could be people like the in minban this is a term which i guess could be roughly translated as like the neighborhood watch these are people who are tasked with observing the kind of comings and goings and the political loyalty of like five other families within their building 
or even, for instance, other groups that might be slightly more privileged would be soldiers within the within the military, soldiers who are doing their military service. But anyway, the point is, I was trying to get a sense of how inequality is understood in North Korea, a society which claims to have um, no inequality in a society that claims to have no classes. Um, and, you know, what was really intriguing to me was that North Koreans kind of gave out these different kind of sokdam, these, this, these different kind of um, almost uh, kind of sayings that, that said like, well, the secret police eat secretly and the security police eat securely and the party workers eat like they're having a party, you know? Um, and these were very kind of um, poetic, rhythmic kind of jokes that they would share about witnessing the inequality. And to me, this was really intriguing because it showed like, well, it confirmed a, that North Korea does have inequality and B that the people are aware of it and C that it can't really be critiqued directly, but you need to have these alternate registers of speech to do it. Um, right. Right. And this really comes out in the next section of chapter three, life of words, where actually uh, you bring specific attention to a, a, a real strength of the book as a whole, which is this very close, uh, nuanced uh, care that you take to uh, talk about the language. Lots of the interviews, for example, I should say, are quoted at length so that you get some sense of real narrative pro- progression there. Um, and also the specifics of pauses in, in speech and words and nuanced language are, yeah, are really brought out extremely clearly uh, all the way through, which, which lends a real power to the accounts that you uh, transmit. So uh, perhaps we can move on to this next chapter where, where language is one of the key focal points. Um, I suppose there's almost a methodological question here because uh, when speech is such a sensitive and, and important issue uh, and when we've, we've already discussed the politics of naming the famine and how the government tried to frame things in certain ways. Um, how do you go about using language in interview forms as a mode of elicitation, as a way of bringing out uh, memories, recollections and stories about an experience when language itself is so stigmatised and so uh, politically significant in the context that, that your interlocutors are talking about? Yeah, this... Um... Well, I suppose the first just simple methodological thing to explain is that I had, you know, uh, gone to Korea initially to learn Korean uh, so that I could speak to North Koreans um, directly myself. I didn't want to have to work with translators. And um, I did all the interviews in Korean. And uh, of course, I am not like the level of a native speaker of Korean, but uh, in many ways, being a foreigner who spoke Korean facilitated a different type of access to knowledge from North Koreans, because especially in places like South Korea and certainly Japan, we were seen as mutual. I mean, they saw me, of course, as a foreigner, but they were also foreigners in these areas, in these countries. And so there was that kind of kinship, if you will, in the sense of being a foreigner. But the other thing about language that I want to say is what's really curious about famine is that famine is very much connected to free speech and free media. Um, so if you look at any uh, any place where there has been famine, uh, there you are going to also find a situation, a condition where there is no um, free media. And that, that's what we see in North Korea. 
Um, so to me, this was really intriguing because not only is there difficulty in getting access or altering your access to food, but there's also difficulty in accessing uh, direct, clear articulation and direct and clear information. So you can't get um, complete information on the conditions throughout your country. Why are things the way they are? And so you're reliant on rumor. And of course, we know in North Korea, there is no such thing as free speech. Um, there is no such thing as free media. Yes, media leaks in from the outside world. And yes, North Koreans are uh, some of the most incredible wordsmiths I've ever met in my life. Um, they're very creative and poetic with their language, but that doesn't mean there's free speech. So those facts just have to be laid out there. Um, so it was really one of the things intellectually and sort of just as a fellow human that really interested me was how are you talking about this thing that you're experiencing when your government is denying it uh, no one around you can speak so directly about it and you don't even really have a kind of set of agreed terminology to speak about it you know the government was talking about it as the konini hengun the government uh, the march of suffering the government was making recommendations about so-called substitute foods that people could eat this is basically classic kind of socialist like ersatz food i mean people are basically eating things that are non-foods things that are manufactured just to fill up the stomach um and the government would say you know make sure you eat your substitute today make sure you eat the substitute food um and then north koreans would just amongst themselves pick up key terms that the government was using and then kind of um you know, alter them or make them their own and uh, subvert the state rhetoric in these very subtle ways. This was something that really intrigued me because to me it suggested um, an indirect critique of the government. Right, yeah. And I think that's a picture of North Korean society that is, uh, well, when one thinks about it, of course, there will be humor and there will be uh, these kind of subtle uh, uses of language, and indeed, often we've seen in a great number of authoritarian contexts, sometimes those conditions of informational scarcity and high level of government control over over discourse and, and what can and can't be said engender some of the most creative and most uh, linguistically interesting strategies. Um, and so that chapter really includes some uh, incredibly fascinating and rich information about about, about jokes and, but, and uh, about conversational strategies. Mm. But on that point, Ed, I mean, I feel like, you know, it wasn't such an obvious thing to say. I mean, now if you look at the media and the, the literature, you can see that people do note that, oh, you know, North Koreans are not um, robots. They're not brainwashed. But at the time, it was kind of an unusual thing to even be asking. And I, and I did deliberately ask North Koreans about some jokes or humor that they remember from the famine years. Um, deliberately, I asked them this. And um, I, I only, for me, I only knew to ask this because I had read about, you know, humor being used in the concentration camps of Nazi-occupied Europe, you know, or um, Zolzhenitsyn writing about it in with the in gulag archipelago i mean i had known that humor was something that comes from comes in addition to just general life but in these dark spaces as well 
think it's not something automatically that people assume about North Korea. But if I can, I just want to say something about this. You know, the, the phrases and the jokes were a critique of the situation. But it's really interesting because the thing that surprised me, I think, most in doing the research was that North Koreans didn't when they were inside North Korea, didn't necessarily see their government as primarily responsible for bringing the famine on them. There was such a lack of information. There was such a confusion of among the rumors. There was such an inability to corroborate the things that you had heard. People didn't necessarily see the government as responsible. They saw, oh, it's my fault because I can't... Uh, make do with what the government is is asking me or uh, it's the the local um, government officials who are taking advantage or things like this it was never seen to be a problem of the political structure itself there was never this understanding that politics and economics are deeply wedded together i mean could you say a little bit more what was the government sort of doing uh, at this time were there were there new strategies deployed from either the center or from local governments uh, with regard to managing famine and actually moving on to the next chapter um life leaves death life leaves death behind um what kind of sort of punishments were meted out for some of the disorderliness that that resulted from famine conditions and so on. Uh, how was yeah? Could you say something about the government's actions in this uh, context? So, the North Korean government, by allowing the famine to take place, I mean the North Korean government would have could have known would have known that the famine was going to take place and would have known that a certain percentage of the population is going to die um, if we don't take particular actions. Um, they then opened up, you might remember, in the mid-1990s to taking international aid. This was kind of a crisis response, I think, from North Korea. Um, they did take in international aid, but uh, many, I mean, Every single person who I interviewed said that they didn't get access to the aid, that they saw the aid being um, given out. And then as soon as the monitors were gone, the aid was then taken back. So basically, it was just a pantomime of receiving the aid. Many people report that it was siphoned off to the military. Um, so the government wasn't making any actions that would have ameliorated people's situation and made life easier for them. They did, in the end, begin to tolerate black markets, um, gray markets, but um, there were periods when North Korean soldiers were ordered, of course, shoot to kill if anyone's crossing the border, but also many of the interviewees reported, you know, seeing somebody stealing um you know, the smallest of potatoes from a from a field and being shot uh, on the spot for doing that, or people receiving public execution for, you know, collecting copper wire from a factory. Um, so people were trying to make, ordinary people were trying to make do, they were trying to be creative with their survival. But the North Korean government um, saw this as a threat to the state. I mean, this was disorder. This was chaos. And, uh, they, and they responded very harshly. In terms of human rights, you know, their 
North Korea was violating their personal or physical integrity rights. I mean, when you are going out of your way to uh, imprison people for stealing or to publicly execute them, that's a violation of their physical integrity. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, the basic uh, type of human right that you're violating. The state doesn't have to do that. The state could just take no action, but they're going out of their way to violate those rights. Prior to that, they were violating people's rights in the economic, social, and political sphere by not allowing them to speak up and make complaints, by not allowing them to sell in the black markets, um, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, the the North Korean government controlled people even migrating within the country itself. This was something um, which was harshly controlled. And, um, you know, I mean, the legacies of suffering just built upon themselves. I mean, it's it's really horrendous when you think about it. And I'll just add one point. You know, you could say, well, wouldn't the North Korean government have thought, hey, if we don't respond humanely to this famine situation, aren't people going to rebel? And in the United States government, and I think many other parts of the world in the mid-1990s, there was this assumption that the famine conditions in North Korea are going to lead to a social uprising. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know if North Korean government was just taking a risk, if they just thought they don't care. But if they had looked at the historical record, which they may have done, you know, Great Leap Forward famine, any other famine, they would have known that famine doesn't lead to social oppressed. Famine doesn't lead to revolution. And so they could have known this is not going to happen. Like people aren't going to be able to rise up. I mean, for other reasons, obviously, as in addition to the famine, there's not going to be a revolution here from lack of food shortage. Right, right. Well, and then, yeah, this, this all builds and builds and contributes to a pretty horrifying situation for uh, so such a large number of people. But as you mentioned in the book, uh, and as was key, I think, to your uh, interview experiences, not everybody left either. Many, most didn't leave. Um, and so in Chapter 5, entitled Breaking Points, you discuss some of the specific things that drove certain kinds of people to leave, to make the decision to uh, try to escape North Korea. Um, what were those and, and, and what sort of people made it out? Well, you know, this is a tricky thing because you're trying to understand who stays by, you know, you're dealing just with an absence because you can't get into North Korea to speak directly to these people. I mean, some people have obviously gone into North Korea, but you're not going to be able to speak directly to famine survivors. And if you if you appeal to the government to go in and speak to famine survivors, you're not going to get in. <laughs> um, so what type of people left? I mean, these individuals are self-selecting to leave. Um, many, you know, you can see right in the book, I mean, I think few people left because, you know, they had seen these public executions and they realized what the person was being executed for. They deemed that in and of themselves, like within their own moral code, let's say, outside of the moral code provided by the government, they deemed that to be unfair. They didn't like what they were seeing in terms of the public executions. They felt that they were, their own lives were under threat um, and they wanted to take a chance. Many people said, you know, the price was the same. If I stay, I'll die. If I leave, I might die. I might get killed or I'll probably die. Well, so I'm going to take the risk. I mean, I'm going to take the gamble. 
um, other people left because, you know, their, their children had died and they felt that, and then that enraged them just toward, in some cases, this enraged them toward the, the North Korean state itself. Like, like I have nothing here anymore. I'm going to leave this country. And, and for many of them, the listeners might know, the vast majority of North Koreans have to pass into China. So it's not as if they're saying, oh, I'm leaving North Korea and I'll go directly to South Korea. I mean, it doesn't work that way. So China is where most people are going, the vast, vast majority. Um, you know, and so it was often seeing things that were quite horrific or realizing that they didn't have, um, you know, classic thing of choiceless choices that they were, they wanted to survive and they opted for that option. I'm, I'm sure there were other people who stayed in North Korea. I mean, many people report that the most loyal people died during the famine because they did what the government told them to do. Um, then there are other people who I suspect um, maybe opted to stay in North Korea and um, continue to try to struggle on through, either because they were loyal or because, you know, they have these family ties. Like we as anthropologists talk about this all the time. Like, I mean, the familiarity of home, um, that workplace, that whole education structure, the whole institution of life in North Korea, that is what you know you don't know anything else. So why would you choose to leave? I mean, to me, this is completely rational <laughs> that you would choose to stay despite things being difficult. There is always that sense in human beings, the delusion of reprieve. I think most people have this delusion of reprieve in any kind of horrendously difficult situation. So, so that's the type of stuff um, that we saw, I mean, other people, I think there's, I can't remember at which point I put this in the book, but there's a story of a man in Pyongyang and he'd come out of his building and he saw a woman and her child and basically they had starved to death. But also when he reports it to the authorities, he says, he says that they have frozen to death, that they died of cold. Again, this goes with the language thing. People couldn't say they died of starvation. They would have to say they, they died from pain. Or they died from being cold, but you know, when he phoned at the local authorities and told them, and then he learned, oh, well, we're picking up bodies all over the place. Like, look, you got to give us some time. We've got a lot of people to collect. I mean, just realizing that this is not a situation I want to live in anymore. Mm -hmm. And I suppose part of the difficulty of making that decision to leave, as well as all of the things that you've just mentioned about home and, and about well, the sheer the sheer complicatedness as well of, of getting out is the fact that once you're out, there's no prospect at all for getting back in or really having any kind of meaningful contact with anyone who's still there, relatives or, or friends or anybody. Um, and in the final chapter, uh, The New Division, you talk about how the act of leaving reproduces the kind of dynamics of division on the peninsula as a whole, arguably a kind of uh, defining condition of career we think about it in the latter half of the 20th century. Could you just uh, say more about how you conceive of this sort of reproduction of the, the, the painful split uh, that does seem such a, such a characteristic uh, of, of tragically so many Korean lives? Mm, yeah, I really like how you phrase that. And um, yeah, that last chapter called The New Division, it's it really is something that struck me when I was speaking with North Koreans. I mean, 
with Korean defectors of all ages, whether they are in South Korea or in fact in Japan, the defectors in Japan, that, um, you know, they are divided from their family and friends the minute they step out of the country into China. I mean, nowadays with technology, there is some changes which I can speak about with regards to this. But um, yeah, I mean, it's an agonizing I really think like it's such an agony for for Korea, for Korean people on both sides, that there is this um, horrendous division and that they, when a North Korean decides to defect, they are if they are effectively in exile. I mean, they they absolutely cannot go back. And but not only are they in exile, but if they decide to speak up and become too public, then they are also hunted. This is not something new that North Korea has done. This is something North Korea did in the late 1950s um, to defectors in Moscow, for instance. But, you know, um, yeah, and just the way, yeah, I mean, the division, the division marks itself in so many ways. I mean, I don't talk about this in that first book, Marching Through Suffering, but in the second book, I talk about it. Like the division can be marked, but other scholars have written and reported about this too. The division of the Koreas is marked in um, in the very bones, the very health of the people. If you look at um, North Koreans who were born, the people, let's say Koreans who were born north of the, the 38th parallel, say in the 1930s, if you compare their height um, with North Koreans who are born today, uh, post post division, so from 1945 on, they're shorter um, than their counterparts. I mean, typically they would be taller. North Koreans, people from the northern part of the peninsula, were taller from, than people from the southern part. This is completely reversed now um, in terms of tuberculosis, multiple drug resistant tuberculosis. This is rampant in North Korea. Uh, it's it's almost been eradicated in South Korea and of course Japan. Um, so this division kind of replicates over and over and over, like in the cells of the people, like you can see that politics becomes, I mean, in the Foucauldian sense, biopolitical, like profoundly, this is biopolitics. Um, I just want to say one other thing, going back to the other chapter about North Koreans leaving, I mean, perhaps listeners might not be aware, like when North Koreans leave, they are walking. Most of them walk. And so, and they're walking across a highly mountainous terrain. North Korea is very mountainous, as is South Korea, but North Korea far more so. So, I mean, to leave is also just physically onerous um, and just it takes a lot of time and it's very difficult. And I mean, there are some North Koreans who have managed to steal trucks and drive across and things like this, but the vast majority are walking out. So, um, yeah, that's that's also something I just wanted to add to that chapter. Sure, sure. Well, I think all of these uh, markers of division, all of the ways that that is expressed and borne by the populations of, uh, of of the peninsula, are certainly key things for us to be thinking about. Uh, even as uh, I suppose cautiously, we might say that things are at least cooling a little, or uh, well, warming up, cooling, depending on. How you think things started, but uh, the uh, atmosphere at least is one of greater dialogue, and uh, who knows where things will go. But I think uh, what you bring out in this book um, is incredibly important for us to understand uh, when trying to see how things 
are operating on the on the Korean Peninsula today. Um, so, Sandra, thank you so much uh, for your time. Um, before we go, I'll ask you our sort of traditional question uh, to end these interviews. You alluded there to your second book. Um, could you say some more about that or, or, or perhaps any other things that you are currently working on and what you have in the pipeline? Well, um, first of all, thanks for having me with the interview, Ed, and I hope some of what, we, what we've explored has been helpful for listeners. Um, I just finished writing, uh, well, it took me about three years to write a second book, and it's called Dying for Rights, Putting North Korea's Human Rights Abuses on the Record. It's coming out with Columbia University Press next year. Basically, it explores the culpability of the North Korean state for human rights violations from the formation of the country in 1948 through the Korean War up to the present. It basically also looks at human rights violations that happen in the political, social, economic spheres, but also the um, violations to physical or personal integrity rights. It looks at uh, rights violations that North Korea exports overseas in terms of overseas workers and uh, North Korea's um, um, treatment of foreign nationals inside its country and beyond its borders. And finally, it looks at North Korean state media and North Korea at the United Nations and how it manipulates messaging on human rights and how the state denies human rights. So I hope um, readers might find that helpful for understanding um, the whole context of North Korea in terms of human rights. Mm. Yeah, well, that definitely definitely sounds equally important. Um, So I'm sure uh, that as readers look to, or listeners look to pick up the new paperback edition of this book, they will also uh, be eager to find out what's in in the new one. Um, Sandra, thank you so much. Uh, It was great talking to you today, and I really appreciate your coming on the show. Thanks a million, Ed. Take care. Uh, Listeners, thank you for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. We will speak to you next time.